reading this morning from the fifth chapter of the book of Joshua. If you'd like to follow along, it's on page 219 in the church Bibles. From chapter 5, verse 13, the fall of Jericho. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Make seven priests carry the trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, make the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and make seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army, Advance, march around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the Ark of the Lord. Then Josh, when Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forwards, blowing their trumpets, and the Ark of the Lord's Covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding, but Joshua had commanded the army, do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout, then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling at once. Then the army returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning and the priests took up the Ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forwards, marching before the Ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them and the rear guard followed the Ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. 
When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. This is the word of the Lord. So we're continuing on the theme of being strong and courageous in, uh, in Joshua. And today I've sort of sub-themed it, partnering with God. So this morning I want to talk about partnering with God in the context of Joshua leading the Israelites from the wilderness into the promised land and the fall of Jericho. I want us to consider this story through the lens of foolishness, the foolishness of God being greater than the wisdom of man. At times, God asks us to do what the world thinks are dumb things. The Australian musician Paul Kelly has a song that he called Dumb Things. The chorus says, in the middle, in the middle, in the middle of a dream, I lost my shirt, I pawned my rings, I've done all the dumb things. Paul Kelly is singing about a lost love that he tries to hold on to without regard for the consequences. His dumb things came from his faith in someone he loved even though it was undeserved. We love and serve a God who is a faithful God. When people of faith follow our supernatural God, things can happen that are supernatural, that are inexplicable. To the world, these actions can look like dumb things. The people of Israel followed Moses from slavery in Egypt to the very threshold of the promised land. Despite experiencing many examples of God's faithfulness on the cusp of arriving at the promised land, they believed a fear-filled report by some of the scouts sent out by Moses. The rumour spread was that, the, that there were giants in the land and it would be impossible for them to take it. The people forgot about God's promises that they would have this land. They complained that they would have been better to have stayed in Egypt as slaves. How ungrateful. Joshua and Caleb were the few among the scouts who told the people not to rebel against God and that with the Lord on their side, they would surely take the land. But the people balked at this opportunity to enter the promised land because they could not imagine winning any battle for the land and they forgot about God's covenant with them and with Abraham. They forgot that God had held back the waters of the Red Sea. The consequence of their unbelief was another 40 years wandering in the wilderness. This happened because they relied on their own understanding. God didn't abandon them. They were still sustained by manna and protected by God. But in failing to trust God, the promise was passed to the next generation. So God ran a faith boot camp with Joshua and the next generation. They were confident of God's presence with them. God spoke to Joshua and asked the people to follow some serious dumb stuff. To enter the promised land, they needed to cross the Jordan River, which was swollen with floodwaters. It was in their way, and God said, we're just going to do this. We're going to walk right through this river. So Joshua, being a great leader, briefed his team, holding nothing back. He explained the plan to them. He was there in the execution of God's plan, but most of all, 
he continued to exhibit his great faith and trust in God. God's instructions, as we heard a few weeks ago, were that the priests were to go first through the water with the Ark of the Covenant and walk through, followed by all the people. The waters would be held back and the riverbed would be dry. So in faith, the priests walked down the bank of the river and before them they saw it dry up. The miracle didn't happen while they stood around waiting. They obeyed the call of God. They walked into the water and the water stopped. As God's partners at times, we need to commit to something before we know how it will turn out. It's called an act of faith. Mark taught us last week that just when everyone had got through the river, the priests, with the priests of the ark ready to get out and walk out of the river, the Lord said to Joshua, send the leaders of the tribes back to pick up a big rock, put it on their shoulders and we'll carry it back and use it as a memorial that we never forget what God has done today. And I don't know if you, if you could imagine being one of those leaders, you'd be going... But we just got out of this. Anyway, they, they knew that if God could hold the water back for one crossing, he'd keep them safe and dry going back for another to pick up some rocks. Nonetheless, it would have felt like a dumb thing to them. So with 40,000 armed men and their families climbing onto the banks of the Jordan on the western side, followed by the priests of the, with the Ark of the Covenant, they find a place to camp called Gilgal. And they put down their stones as memorial reminders that God had shut down the waters so they could cross the Jordan. And there they eat from the surrounding land. It's been harvest time. The flood, floods happen at the same time as harvest. And the harvest has been brought in. And the land of plenty had plenty of food to offer. This was their first meal in the promised land and the last time God sent them manna. Because his promises had meant that they no longer needed to receive his grace in that way because he, they were receiving grace through occupying the land. So settled at Gilgal, the next dumb thing, while they were camped there, Joshua was told by the Lord to make flint knives to circumcise all the armed men. Those who were born within the 40 years in the wilderness hadn't been circumcised in accordance with the Abrahamic tradition. Now that would have been a really challenging conversation. No doubting Joshua's great faith and capability as a leader, but not a great idea to temporarily impair the team you are preparing for battle. But Joshua put obedience to God ahead of any self-confidence about marching on Jericho or taking the land. There was no hubris. He knew that he ne they needed to be in a right relationship with God to enjoy his favour and love. He chose not to move ahead of God. At times we need to wait on God. His answer can be, yes, but not yet. So the men submitted their bodies to be circumcised in accordance with the covenant of Abraham as they dedicated themselves to God. Fortunately, Joshua chapter 5 also says that the Amorite and Canaanite kings had heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before we had crossed over. Their hearts melted and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. So the Israelites were not likely to be attacked. They gave, this gave the men time to recover, El Gilgal. The Canaanites had retreated to Jericho and to the safety of the walled city. Uh, Calvin, can you the next slide, please? They had enough 
food from the harvest and a spring with abundant water. They were safe and ready for a long siege. They put their faith in the walls, like a turtle can put its faith in its shell. They put their faith in the walls they had built around themselves to keep them safe from the Israelites and the Israelites' mighty God. In the face of an obvious miracle, they were not open to understanding what the Israelites were planning or how God had done it. They just shut down. Joshua wasn't idle while his men were recovering. He went out and checked out the fortifications of the city. He meets a man standing in front of him, as, as we heard, with a drawn sword. And Joshua asks the obvious question, are you with me or are you with someone else? Uh, the man then says, I'm the commander of the Lord's army and I'm neither for you nor against you, which is a bit strange. And he says, I've come, I'm here. So, I don't know, if I was planning to take on the city, I would have been more encouraged to know that he was there for me than neutral. But anyway, God was there. He was there and he had instructions for Joshua. And it was the instructions that led Joshua to know how to proceed. The commander had the power to destroy Jericho on its own, but God wanted the Israelites to partner with him. God is our rescuer, our great deliverer, but he does this in and through relationship. He responds to our prayers and requests and his faithfulness has no limits. The final dumb thing that Joshua was told to do by the Lord wasn't walking through a river, but it was equally absurd. They were to march around the city for seven days. It didn't sound like a great battle plan. Cover the next slide, please, Kelvin. No element of surprise, not a siege. The people of Jericho could come and go when they weren't marching around the city or they could escape to the hills. They were marching around a walled and fortified city and making a lot of noise. But in the centre of the procession, they had the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant. This was to tell the inhabitants, our God beats your gods. They were to march within range of the parapets where their opponents could yell and throw missiles and spears. Do this for six days in a row and then keep it going for seven, day, seven times on the seventh day. Certainly sounds like a dumb plan to me. So imagine you're at the MCG to watch St Kilda play in Melbourne. Instead of warming up to play the game, the St Kilda team does a lap of victory, makes a lot of noise and then goes back to the changing rooms. They do this for six days and then on the seventh day, they charge around for seven times. You can imagine the abuse and frustration of the opposing supporters and teams. Come out and play. Come on, get in the game. Or place yourself in the mind of a Canaanite soldier on the wall. Day one, quick, high alert, those Israelites are outside the wall. Let's be vigilant. Surrounding us, thousands of armed men and some priests with trumpets and some sort of mobile shrine. What is this all about? But soon all the action is over and the attacker has marched away again. Day two, quick, back on the wall. What's happening? Are they going to attack? Do they have any siege equipment? Do they have ladders? Do they have a catapult? You can imagine the soldiers talking amongst themselves. What? The same as yesterday. Once around the city, then back to their camp. They can't beat us. Day three, day four, day five. Do we even go in the wall if they turn up again? It's so predictable. Our walls are so strong and impenetrable. They've gone again. We're safe. 
But God's plan was bigger than the Canaanites and the walls of this ancient city. God the creator uses this foolish plan and these Israelites to deal with the proud and depraved Canaanites. And at a time of God's choosing, he made the walls fall down. The Canaanites who sacrificed defenseless babies and children to their ferocious gods now found themselves defenseless against the Israelite attackers. In Corinthians 1.25, Paul wrote, The foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. And in 1.28 he wrote, God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong, so that no one may boast before him. The fall of Jericho is not something the Israelites could boast in. They could only boast in their God who pulled down those walls. It was truly an act of God. Next slide, please, Kelvin. The archaeology at Jericho indicates the walls comprised a stone retaining wall, you can see that in the lower section, which had a, then had mud brick walls built above it. The stone wall was the hardest part to climb. It was sheer with very few handhelds. After the seventh time around and at the sound of the trumpets and shouting, it was the mud brick walls that fell and fell over the stone walls. The collapsed brick mud bricks fell and provided the ramp which allowed the Israelites to clamber into the city. So if you can imagine the upper walls falling down, that actually provided a smooth path for the Israelites to get in. The walls that once stood fell and became the invaders' rampart. Without the protection of the walls, the Canaanites were defenceless against the Israelites who were surrounding the city. This wasn't storming a fort through a single heavily guarded gate. The walls of Jericho just opened up in all directions. In 2016, I joined a team of architects and engineers with Architects San Frontiers UK and we had a project in Bungamat in Nepal, about 25 kilometres from Kathmandu. The project was to assist the community with a strategy to rebuild the town following the devastating earthquakes in 2014. These people built their houses from mud brick and straw. The earthquake made the roofs and the walls of the houses collapse and with a double whammy, the monsoon rains came dissolving the mud bricks and washing away their homes. Their crops were destroyed. I walked past many mud and rubble piles where once mud brick homes had stood. Our team partnered with the local people to help them identify what was important about their village and how they could make decisions about whether the use of new building techniques would impact on their traditional way of life. We were their partners, but they had to make the plan for their own themselves. They lived there in their way. Similarly, we partner with God we can do nothing good without him, but paradoxically, the maker of the universe and all within it wants to partner with us. That is truly amazing. Our partnership with God takes many forms. It is in the prayers we pray, the conversations we have, the gifts we use. God doesn't need our help, but he is blessed by it. We bless the Lord with our faith and our obedience. Obedience not as slaves, but as loving sons and daughters. As we devote ourselves to God in these ways, he builds us in faith, in joy and in expectation of his goodness. 
He changes us through his Holy Spirit. And in us, he produces the fruit of the Spirit. We are his orchard and providing spiritual sustenance to others. So what does our devotion look like? What does God expect of us? Next slide, please, Calvin. Micah, an Old Testament prophet, put it this way in chapter 6, verse 8. He showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the law require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. We are to be conduits of peace, to be prepared to support the disadvantaged and those who cry for justice. And next slide, Calvin. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 15, describes our response to God as a sacrifice of praise. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name, and to not forget to do good and to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. We are to bear witness to God with our words and our lives. In an instant response world where the media encourages us to criticise and distrust, God wants us to lift up others with our words and our actions, just to be encouragers. I once worked with a senior retail executive who headed up a number of retail businesses. His favourite saying was, success builds on success. We know Ian's favourite saying is always, the answer is always yes, but this is uh, someone else's favourite saying. It was so true. The discipline and hard work required to build one business meant that a successful business attracted investment, which enabled it to grow and to flourish. Faith is like that too. It grows as we believe and apply his word to our lives, responds to his prompting through the Holy Spirit, and we grow in trust in God. Faith builds on faith, and it grows as we share it with others, other believers, and with other people. Fear of others and shame can rob us of the joy and capacity to worship God unreservedly. But as we immerse ourselves in worship and adoration of God, we do so joyfully. Even when we don't feel like it, as joy is an expression of how God is changing us from the inside. God is great and he deserves our love and adoration. And being a little bit undignified, as King David once said, may free us to greater levels of joy. Deuteronomy 6 says we're to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, our souls and our strength. As our affections are turned to God, our souls and wills submit to him and our bodies and energy are used to serve him. Much as faith builds on faith, we also need to be expectant to see God at work in what we do and who, and who we know. We had a great day with the Alpha participants last Saturday. We hoped that people would open up to God and have some good conversations, but as often happens, it was much more than we expected. People wanted prayer for hurts and pains. They wanted healing and to know more of God. We should not be surprised when God is at work in people. We should pray, watch and wait for small and large opportunities. We will see God do more in the lives of people around us. So here are four characteristics of God's done things. One, they're inconsistent with the values of the world. Two, they point to God, not to us. Three, they build faith in and expectation of God's goodness. And four, they show God's kindness to others. A number of our people cook 
a meal for Ramana House once a month so that the staff can have a day off. It is a very kind service and I think this qualifies as one of God's done things. It shows a generosity of time and resources inconsistent with the world's values. Why should I give my time to help someone else? It is a reflection of God's love, not ours. The team that do this are themselves growing in faith in God and relationship with another, one another. The same can be said of many other activities at St Collins. Playgroup, Alpha, Youth, Kids Church, Community Garden, Small Groups. Iron sharpens iron. We grow in faith as we spend time with each other. As we put our hands to God's work, we grow in faith and expectation. In the eyes of the world, Jesus did one of the greatest done things ever. The cross was an offence to his peers, a disgraceful death for criminals and rebels that was held outside the walls of the city. The local leaders who had plotted to get rid of him would have been so pleased with their, with their manipulation of Pilate and Herod that their victory was short-lived because God made their success a failure on the third day when Jesus rose from the grave. God takes man's wisdom and turns it into foolishness with his creator's power to rewire the world. The real victory was over the sin that had been hardwired into men and women in Genesis by believing the serpent's lies and wanting to be like God. The repeated failure of the Israelites to be faithful to their holy God showed that the law and adherence to it could not undo the contagion of sin. But Jesus, through his death and resurrection, broke the curse of sin and death. We no longer stand before God condemned by our incapacity to keep his laws. God has now written his law on our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Jeremiah 31:33 says, I will put my law in their minds and write it in their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbour or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. This relationship was won for us on the cross by Jesus. Our hope is not in our performance of the law, but in God's great mercy and love. So, how do we then live? Well, I think we live a life of prayer, we live a life in community, and we live a life trusting God's faithfulness. So, let's now pray. Father God, we thank you that in Jesus you will turn our defensive walls into the ramparts through which your love can enter us. Lead us through your Holy Spirit so that we may not fear to do the dumb things of God. Lead us into new places of faith, joy and confidence in your goodness. In the name of Jesus.